I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. My guest today is Marc Lévy. Monsieur Lévy is a literary powerhouse across multiple genres. He's published 19 works of fiction, pretty much one a year for 19 years. They encompass love, lost and found, suspense, romance, and almost always a vein of humor. And they are tremendously popular, to such a degree that when French readers were asked their favorite author in 2015, he tied with Victor Hugo for first place. As with each of our guests, we ask him to tell us about three books. The book that had the biggest influence on him in childhood, the book that was most formative for him as he began as a writer, and then what he drew on in writing his most recent book, A Woman Like Her. Marc Levy, welcome to Kobo. Hi, thank you very much. Let's go back to the beginning. You grew up in Beaulieu-sur-Mer, a beautiful town on the southern coast of France. Were books important in the Levy household when you were growing up? They were very much, because first my father was an art publisher, and he was an absolute reader. He was reading like three to four books a week. The house was surrounded by bookshelves and books. There were books in every room and very well organized. <laughs> Now, because sometimes when you talk about many books, you can you know, picture like a very chaotic environment. But in fact, his, uh, his bookshelves were very organized by authors, by titles, by uh, the one he loved. I was surrounded by books. And were you introduced to speak? specific books as a child or did you find your way into reading yourself you know what because my father was an art publisher before i was introduced to books i was introduced to the way the books were made in my first memory of books i have to say visiting a printing factory with my father where he was selecting his paper in art publishing in these days papers were tremendously important and you were hunting papers like you were hunting literally treasure and i have in my memories of childhood this you know the, the memories of fragrance are the most tenacious memories and i have this memory of uh, the smell of papers the smells of the leather uh, from which the cover were made i can't even remember the noise of uh, an amazing machine which i would be absolutely incapable to tell you the name in english which is this used machine which cuts the paper which was very impressive when i was a childhood so it's in fact i met books not in a bookshelf i met books where books were literally coming to life as a sensory experience more than as a reader first when i remember my childhood my relationship with books books were alive i remember you know those books being made getting out of the printing, the rolls of paper rolling and the noise in this, all those components. And suddenly at the end of the chain, the books were there. And it was like they were dancing in my childhood. That's where, you know, why I said, you know, the books were all over the place. At some point, there's this transition from books as a living tactile object that's sort of flowing through your home to something that contains stories and it's something that you can engage with individually. Was there a particular book that made that transition happen for you as a child? In fact, there was two. The first one, as far as I can remember, I was uh, seven years old. 
and it was the end of school year and I think it's the only time in my life where I, I got a prize. I can't remember for what. Maybe you know, I was just, you know, a nice boy for the school. But anyway, and the prize was an old edition of De La Terre à la Lune, From Moon to Hearth, From Hearth to Moon by Jules Verne. I have to tell you what really triggered my fascination was not only the story, but the little text that was written before the story. And the text was explaining to the readers that when Jules Verne published his book, he was highly criticized for his fantasy, you know, how crazy it was to think that one day a man, you know, in literally in an iron bullet will be sent to the space and will, you know, land on the moon. And really, this text was explaining how Jules Verne was mocked for having such a crazy idea. For the story, I received this book and the very latest day of May 1969. And a few weeks later, my mother woke me in the middle of the night and she drove me to my grandmother's bedroom where the only TV of the house was there. And we watched the first step of a man on the moon. I was not looking at him. I was looking at all the men at Cap Canaveral in their, you know, white short sleeves shirts with their screen, their, I mean, was it already computers, you know, facing their screen. And those men was literally figuring the top notch of the human intelligence. And I have this memory of my childhood while I was looking at those men and wondering how many of them are here today because when they were my age, they read From Hearth to Moon from Jules Verne. And I think that I did realize quite early that books not only tell about the past, not only they tell about the present, but most of the time they figure what the future will be. And I have a direct connection between this book and another master writer, which I own a lot of my imagination and my love of books, Victor Hugo. And Hugo has one time said these sentences which has been so important for me in my life. There is nothing more imminent than the impossible. If you came across Marc Levy at that age, at age seven, at age eight, would you say this child is going to become a writer? Certainly not. What I would say is for the next 10, 15 years, your teacher and your parents but mostly your teacher are going to blame you in class, telling you, stop dreaming. Don't stop dreaming, because one day this will be your job. If there is a traditional path for a novelist, you didn't follow it. At 18, you joined the Red Cross. You worked with them while studying management and computer science. What was driving you at that age? I guess probably the same purpose than in writing, discovering the unknown going to a place which wouldn't be familiar, and not by appetite of risk, but just because I was curious. Back in the 17, being curious was not considered to be a quality. You know, it was almost impolite to be curious. And I was extremely curious of everything. For example, if an amazing cake was brought to the table, I was more excited about learning and understanding how that cake had been made than about, you know, tasting it. Usually starting a company is a fairly all-consuming thing, and you started two of them. Was writing waiting in the background the whole time that you were in business, or was there a certain point that you said, 
it's time for a change, it's time to start writing. It was not a premeditated process, in fact. I was a single father, and like many parents, when bedtime was coming, I was telling a bedtime story to my son. Except that I had the crazy idea to invent the bedtime story, and the even more crazy, to make it an ongoing story, you know, with episode that were following episode after episode, which of course had for for consequences that many, many, many times my son was telling me, no, 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 the story didn't end up there yesterday, no, 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 this has already been done. So to avoid my son's reproach, I started, as soon as he was asleep, I was going into my study and I was writing the next episode which I was learning by heart, so instead of reading, you know, I could really tell him the story, which was my whole excitement was to tell a story, with this very conflictuous situation where if he was falling asleep very fast, the father was happy and the storyteller was really upset, and if he was keeping his eyes wide open, father was a little annoyed, but the storyteller was so excited about it. But anyway, when he turned nine, he clearly made me understand that TV was much more exciting than Daddy's story. So that was it, you know? Fall of the curtain, as we say in France. But this this moment of writing every night, I was missing it a lot, and especially writing to him. So I had this crazy idea, which was absolutely not that I was going to write a book, but I, I thought, if I can't write the story anymore to the children that he is, maybe I can write the story to the man that he will become one day. And the main idea behind this idea was to think if I can share a story that I will give him to read when he will have exactly the same age than I have while I'm writing it, for the time of the reading, we will have the same age and we will be best friend in the world. And the idea that I could trick the time and have for a few hours the same age than my son and be his best friend of the same age was exciting enough for me to start writing this story, which became, if only it were true, which became the movie Just Like Heaven. And how old is your son now? 28. And has he read it? Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) As you were making that transition from storytelling to a child to writing for the adult that he would become, were there authors whose experience you were drawing from or style you were drawing from as you were starting to make that very different kind of story? I would say the thousand and thousand of books that I've read so far. To answer your question with honesty, 19 books later, doubt never, never and ever leaving me when I write. 19 books makes writing more difficult than writing one. Every time I have a doubt, every time I'm wondering, why am I doing this? You know, why am I spending so many nights writing? Why living in this? Because writing is a very solitary environment. You know, why, why, why? I go to my bookshelves. I pick a book of Roman Gary. I read two pages. And I have this thing which comes to my mind. If one day in my life I can write two pages like those one, it's worth working all my life. A woman like her, your latest book has this incredible cast of characters all tied to one apartment building and really one elevator in one apartment building in New York City. Was there a seed or an idea that got that book started? You know, there is a seed, there is a ground around the ground uh, uh, in which you buried the seed and then there is the water. I'm interested in the entire garden. (laughs) 
So <laughs> let's speak about the garden. It was a conjunction uh, of three things. The seeds was the lift man. In fact, one evening, I walked in one of those elevators, one of these, those very last 53 elevators in Manhattan, where the elevator is fully manual and which can't be operated by anyone else than a lift man, a qualified lift man. I was in this elevator and there were like eight people in this elevator, all talking together, you know, about their life, their day. And the lift man was, you know, we were facing his back and he was, you know, in front of the, the louver, you know, to manipulate the elevator. And it came up to my mind that this man knows everything. He see everything and nobody see him. Nobody see him. And I said, this man is absolutely invisible for the people in this elevator. And I was watching him and it came right up to me that he was an amazing character for a novel. An invisible man, which presence was so obvious for me which knew the life of every tenant of the building. And when I mean the life, I mean really their life, you know, their love story, their sadness, their joy, uh, not only their daily routine, but all their life. So it came up to me, this man, this lift man with this elevator, him and his elevator will be at least the vertebral column of a, of a novel. And with this probably also the crazy excitement uh, of the mountain climber, you know, which says, this one, I won't make it. Because the idea that you're going to create a whole story based on that, you know, looks like almost impossible. So this came from one thing. The second thing was that I think a writer writes in his time. And I think that a writer express in his story, at least this is my conception of a writer, when I say the time in which he lives, which means all the contradiction of the times in which he lives. And so in these times, I think it was more important than ever to talk about the beauty of the diversity of, of the society. How do I talk about the diversity of the, of the world, the beauty of it, and how do I share it? We have two ways to do that. You can moralize, which is quite boring and very pretentious, or you can do it through the journey of a comedy. Why? Because I think that the best way to share a question is through empathy. Empathy with characters. When you were talking about the book that I read when I was a child, the most important book that I read all my life was books with which when I ended the story, books that gave me the desire to be. I mean, the most amazing twisted thriller you know which is an amazing page turner where all the if you know like for 400 pages i'm wondering who killed who well done but if it's the only reason why i read that book you know i'm going to read one two but not three but some books with a less twisted story which when i close the last page of the book i want to be I want to be friend with one of the characters. I want to eat the food that they had in this book. I want to feel this emotion. I want to understand this. That's the book that matters the, mo the most for me. And I think that sometimes human comedy or comedy full of humanity are amazing vectors of sharing with others. That was the water that, you know, make the seeds become a book. One of your characters, Chloe, is is in a wheelchair recently, but permanently, a very visible disability. But is it safe to say that 
the other characters have their own less visible handicaps as well. The thread of the book is that light gets in and out from the wounds. You can look at the most perfectly polished piece of marble. Lights will only reflect on it. It won't get in or out. So now, as we started this conversation about, you know, young age, the first day you walk into a school, you're perfectly aware about your difference. You know it. And now two things can happen. Either your difference will define who you are, either hiding your difference will define who you are. And what will make you express your difference or hide your difference? Only the way the society around you is going to treat it. All my characters have their wounds. Some are very visible, some are less visible. Chloe is moving in a wheelchair, but she's not handicapped at all. I mean, she is from a certain angle, but from another angle, she's not at all. And she might be in a, in a wheelchair, she might move in a wheelchair. I mean, for me, I can't even say that she's in a wheelchair because she just move in a wheelchair. But she's absolute complete characters. She has her wound. She doesn't pretend that they are not existing, but she's so much more than that. And she's definitely not defined by the fact that she sits in a wheelchair. In a woman like her, many relationships are in a state of flux. And one of the things that I I loved about it was it isn't a one relationship book. It's a many relationship book. And people are drawing together and pulling apart. As you're writing, do you set characters in motion as individuals and then see what they do? Or do you imagine people in pairs, in dynamics, in relationships? I really wonder how the character comes to life. For example, I, I, I've never been able to remember how the, the surname of a character came. Why her name is Chloe, I can't remember. And why when I started to write, I wrote Chloe they literally pop up out of the page of the book and they are alive. A few years ago, I wrote a book which was named The Strange Journey of Mr. Daldry. And the, the, originally, the title of the book was The Strange Journey of Alice. But in fact, something happened while I was writing the book which I never thought about. Ethan Daldry became my best friend. And I was so close to him. I spent so many months with him and I was so fond of him that I was literally incapable of ending the book because I didn't want to leave him. And so when my publisher said, you know, we really need now your, <laughs> your book, I changed the title and it had been named, you know, The Strange Journey of Mr. Daldry because now every time I think about, you know, this book, Daldry is here. So to try to answer shortly your question, every character start, you know, their own life in the book. And, and like in real life, some are going to become your best friend. Some you're going to fall in love with them. And most of the time, they're going to tell you what they want you to do with them and not me telling you know, to them what I want them to do. When really the characters take control of the story, that's when writing makes sense. So I knew when I was writing this story that it would definitely not be a two-character story. Absolutely not. The whole thing was, you know, the whole game was... Eight floor, 10, 12 characters, they're all different, they're all lovable, hateable, and they are definitely, none, one of them is what you think he is or she is, and now let's have fun, let's start the dance. But nothing more than that was premeditated. 
You've lived in a number of cities, but for 10 years, I think, New York has been home. Are there certain kinds of stories that just fit well into a certain city? Is a woman like her a New York love story, or is it a love story that just happens to happen in New York? I think it's a New York love story, to be very honest. The decorum of a story is, a, is an entire part of the story. And sometimes the place where a story happens becomes even like almost important as a character. Because when you travel, you know that you know places have their soul. And so you have two ways of making, I would say, to write the stage, if I, if I use this figure of speech. You can make it like you know, a 2D stage, where after all, you know, the characters move and we don't care about the stage. But I really believe that cities, mountains, countries, seas, they have a soul. And they have their own language. And they have to be able to talk with the characters. And the characters relate to them. So it is definitely a New York comedy. Because I believe that the nature of the dialogues, the relationship, what is being said, what is being understood but not said, is culturally related. For example, what you would say and not say in Paris, what would be understand and not understand is Paris, is definitely different from the same things in New York. I strongly believe that I would have never been able to write this story if I hadn't lived for almost 10 I mean, for more than 10 years in New York. With this book now out in the world, is there anything you wish you could tell Maclevy, who was writing his first book back in 1998, 1999? I'm going to do a lot of mistakes, and it's great to make mistakes. In that, writing is like common to all, to every work that you do is love. You have to do it very seriously, but never taking you seriously. Because if you betrayed that, you lost the most important thing about writing, which is the dream, the magic of fun, the craziness of your childhood when telling a story was a joke, but it was a joke that could change your life. The most important thing is to learn each of them, not reproduce them, but remember that you're going to do a lot of new mistakes that you don't know about. And the day you think you don't do mistake anymore, stop writing. Marc Levy, thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you, my pleasure. That's it for this episode of Kobo in Conversation, a podcast about books and the authors who write them. To discover the books you just heard about, or to follow us, please visit www.kobo.com slash conversation. This podcast is produced at the Kobo Audiobook Studios here in Liberty Village in Toronto, Ontario, Canada.